Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we talk to one of our favorite comedians about one of their favorite subjects and we try to trace its history to find out exactly where it went off the rails. I'm joined as always by my co-host Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, this was fun as hell. It really was. This week we're talking with Avital Ash, who's a comedian you and I have worked with before. We got to have her on uh, Spitfire up in Chicago. I've had her on, on uh, Cabin Fever as well. Uh, she's got the podcast He's Right Behind You, as well as the new show Anti-Social Distance, which will be coming out April 8th in two days with multiple episodes dropping in the week. You can follow her everywhere at uh, Avital Ash on social media. This was so fun. We got to dive into the history of comedy, uh, which you and I both nerd out about so hard, and Avital too. We had thoughts. We we definitely had thoughts. This is our longest episode on record, and I think it's after we cut a bunch of stuff out, and it's still our longest on record. It was fantastic to talk about. It was so fun to get into, and I'm glad we got to deal with some important issues on this, too, because there's a lot here. This is an important thing in all of our lives, and I'm glad we got to cover it from all sides. Agreed. So, hey, let's get into it. Avital Ash, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It is absolutely our pleasure. I know I, I got to meet you a couple years ago when you came up to Chicago and did uh, Spitfire with Wen and I, which was so much fun. It was, it was. I was a fan before then, so it was great to meet you. I was pretty new too, so this was like, okay, you have to pretend this is not a giant moment for you and act like, <laughs> no, we're just doing the same job. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh my gosh, it was a blast. Thanks for having me. Was that already two years ago? Jesus Christ. Speaking of, of this space too, I do want to talk about your new show that you have come coming out, Anti-Social Distance. Yes. Thank you for bringing it up and giving me a chance to plug it. Absolutely. It's uh, all shot during quarantine as a way to stay creatively sharp. Before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about, you know, how weird it is not being able to be able to do like in-person stand-up shows. Right. And so just because I have no other abilities <laughs> writing and performing, I'm like, I better do something. And so it's all shot during quarantine over Zoom. And uh, it's been a little bit of a nightmare, but Hopefully it will be fun to watch. And it's set during Passover of 2020. So the first Passover, Pesach in quarantine. And I didn't want to make a series like specifically about COVID-19. So it's more about how that induced isolation kind of forces you to reckon with yourself. And like that sort of is the backdrop of it. And it's a dramedy, which is sort of where all my stuff lives. Like I think the sad stuff is funny, which is great as we get into talking about comedy today. So so hopefully it's a little bit heart-wrenching and also funny. Uh, so comedy, why did you want to talk about this today? So, okay, so to be totally transparent, I just didn't have ideas. And <laughs> yeah. I, know you, <laughs> I know you through comedy. So that was sort of a natural leap. Yeah. And and um, maybe, you know, after I suggested it, you might have gathered from my email last night, I got a little bit terrified of like, oh, God, <laughs> are we going to am I going to say something wrong and be canceled? And uh, but maybe maybe that's good. Like the the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek kind of thing. Maybe it's good. To <laughs> what scares you? God, I love the level of drama that just brought to our show. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's it's uh, a topic that it, it is one of the topics that I've had to set a rule on with my girlfriend where it was, you can just tell me to stop. <laughs> I will no, at no point get bored of talking about this. And also I get so in the moment that I will lose all ability to read social cues and the boredom on your face. <laughs> so I'm excited to see you go into quadruple speed today instead of yeah. <laughs> 
It's yeah, by the way, the worst trade for anyone that stands on stage for a living is the inability to control the speed of your voice. <laughs> but the more excited I am, the faster it gets, as our, our listeners have heard many times. I relate to that on stage. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know why. I think most stand ups love um, sort of luxuriating in the audience and like that the laughter fuels them. And I'm like right. always eager to get it over with for some reason. I'm like, better speed through. <laughs> I don't want to forget my lines. <laughs> like the worst stand up. Just going to ride this momentum. I'm just going to ride this momentum all the way to the Keep end going. of the line. Yeah. <laughs> when I do pause, it's usually because I'm like, fuck, what, what's next? Okay, got it. Well, so I, I have, I mean, we've talked about this before. I'm a, I'm a one-liner comic. And depending on my, all of this is audience dependent. It's how, how long I put into the pauses. But I can tell anywhere between three and six jokes a minute. And that makes it so hard to plan a set yeah. uh, around a, a time length. So I, I really try to control the speed there. But then a lot of that is just the pausing for laughter. And mm-hmm. when you have delayed reaction jokes, then it's like, okay, do I wait for that last guy to finish yeah. or do I cut myself off here? Right. Especially when you have me in the audience, Andrew, because there are some <laughs> of your one-liners where I'm cackling for like 10 my seconds part. longer than everyone else. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. You're a dream audience. Absolutely. No, we, we try and stack when at every show I do now. My, one of my wife's uh, good friends is a stand-up and... Uh, I went to one of her shows and she lives before I started doing stand up. She literally came up to me afterwards. It was like, you're at every fucking show that I do from here. on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. No, I, I think when actually came out to my first uh, paid gig, too. Uh, and which was, yeah, I mean, <laughs> of course. But that was a nice because uh, it's like you have to know all of these jokes by now. So I, I was just trying not to stare at him when I hit a new one. <laughs> well, let's let's get a little bit into the history of this, too, because I, I think we also have a lot of stage experience that we can cover in hopefully not personally, but how it's related to the where it went wrong aspect. So I want to get into some of the background of this. Uh, so as always, the first place I go now is, is ancient Sumer because uh, it's, it's amazingly got the start of everything. Uh, but this one, <laughs> what was challenging here is the main issue with trying to understand ancient humor are obviously translation for a form that is dependent on word choice and delivery, but also context. There's this ancient Greek joke, uh, thistles are like lettuce to the lips of a donkey. Classic. This was a killer at the time. <laughs> But for this to make any sense, you need not only the understanding that lettuce was considered an aphrodisiac at the time, but also enough familiarity with thistles and donkeys as part of your daily life that this feels like an apt comparison. Okay, so you have in the notes that this is essentially a Viagra joke. And I will say, even with the understanding that lettuce was considered an aphrodisiac, this joke makes no sense to me. I was like, I labored over what could this possibly mean? And the best I could come up with was like, roses are like chocolate to the lips of Trump. It's like, or like passing your pearls before swine. Like, I do not understand. Like the donkey is an ass, but then you're, so you're like, but why, what do the thistles have to do with anything? What did they do wrong that they're like throwing away an aphrodisiac? I don't get it. I went through this a lot. And yeah, the the best interpretation I had of it was the uh, love of don- that donkeys had for thistles was equivalent to man's love of lettuce because it was an aphrodisiac. So thistles are like lettuce. So donkeys love thistles. Man love lettuce because they love their erection. Yeah, I was I was reading it as like like donkeys will eat fucking anything. Like they'll eat fucking thorns <laughs> and they'll get hort for it because yeah know, they'll just do whatever. So I love the idea of an ancient Greek saying horned. <laughs> that, that was killing it. The there time. were a very horned people, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's true. So but but not only was lettuce considered funny, but the head of lettuce was funnier than the leaves of lettuce. This is obviously a, a 
time period where you are a bit starved for entertainment. I'm going to be honest with you. As a as a comedian, though, I would sit around and be like, what's funnier, leaves of lettuce or, or, or the whole head of lettuce? Which is funnier? <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though, because I've definitely written friends and been like, OK, but but which number is funnier here right, for the number right. of times where it's it just is. Th- these are conceptual things that I will say head is still funnier than leaves. I mean, I agree. <laughs> I agree. It's funnier. Like a head of lettuce, lettuce is definitely funnier near the leaves of lettuce yeah it's like personification a little bit there's also like a <laughs> double entendre like giving head as we as we eventually get into blue comedy which i think is as old as time the head you got to go with the head of lettuce it is in fact the oldest joke ever we recorded that we actually have saved uh was actually oh i forgot this was from sumer 3900 bce uh when the, the the line was a lot of jokes by the time were phrased as riddles not surprising so it was what has never happened since time immemorial a young wife has not farted on her husband's lap this is the <laughs> oldest joke in recorded history by the way never told a fart joke in my life and it makes me <laughs> deeply uncomfortable uh, <laughs> so that there you go audience that that was horrendous for me this is the oldest joke man has ever had saved they had to carve this into stone <laughs> That's how important this line was at the time. That was a long ordeal. They had to just, they had to take out a chisel and they had to work on it to be like, guys, that fucking fart joke can't get it out of my head. It's so good. (laughs) Can we, okay. So if if we're going the comedy route of dissecting jokes and why is it funny and why is that? It's just that people don't like to fart in front of each other is all it's basically saying, or especially women don't like to fart in front of men, which like, isn't really a joke. They're saying a young wife. So they're saying like, they're, there's no relaxation here. This is a young, an older wife will fart in her husband's lap. That is, that is apparently understood. Okay, okay. Well, no, but it, but it's the opposite <laughs> of the d- delivery here. The uh, the the delivery is saying that this will always happen. What has never happened since time immemorial. Uh, the, by the way, the level of double negativeness is unnecessary. So yeah, the, the statement is that this will always happen, oh, which is surprising. Right. I was lost on this one. Yeah, we're confused by all of these jokes, even right. with your thorough explanations. I'm like, I don't get it. And and I think that is actually part of the issue here is is that this is cultural. So mm-hmm. whether or not this was dependent on this was a common joke of the time, this was something that a young wife might find funny, whether or not this this was something that my abnormal psych professor talked about years ago where he said it was just dependent on the, where the person you dated was from that he said this was a hard time. He, he dated someone from Scandinavia and it was like second date and the level of familiarity was so high. So when you're going back not only to a different region but to a period 6,000 years ago trying to understand how this is funny requires the context of a world that we have no understanding of. But you're saying Andrew that the double negative is saying that young wives always fart on their husband's laps? That was the implication. Like, <laughs> Let's go through the, the text of this. Isn't what has never happened since time immemorial. Oh, yeah, did I get that backwards? A young, but then a, what has never happened since time immemorial? A young wife has not. It could go either way. It I could think. go either. Uh, God. All right. Well, ancient, yeah, ancient Sumerians. Ancient Sumerians I mean, get it together. To the podcast, <laughs> please write us, and we will. I had a uh, I had a college professor who uh, broke down comedy as comedy is like beer and that it does not travel or age very well. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that's the perfect kind of summation of of these ancient Sumerian jokes. And it's a, a, a really good point because you've also got surviving ancient joke books. The older the oldest being uh, Philogelos, which you know translates roughly to love of laughter. And this is likely from fourth century CE, where a number of insults in this book were about people from the town of Abdera. Uh, and and this is the equivalent of like the the dumb blonde jokes today. And the the 
level of depth in this was also just the idea that there isn't travel like there is now. Anyone who is not from your town is a foreigner mm-hmm. and therefore probably stupider than you. And and trying to understand these and realizing that like, yeah, we still have the racism today. That part sadly held on and the we're number one of it all and like let's right. make fun of everyone else i just think of that as like a distinctly modern american thing but i guess it's ancient i don't it, it I just really don't was think any of you guys have ever met someone from abdera really yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's it maybe these were totally accurate but yeah i mean trying to understand these without the context was challenging and we also know why this is the oldest joke book because athenius wrote that philip ii of macedonia who's of course the father of alexander the great paid for a social club in athens to write down its memory members jokes during 4th century BCE, which is just the BuzzFeed of the time, I guess. It's just, let's go rip off some comedians and put this down and, and uh, get paid for this. So this is, I mean, this was was obviously significant here. Entertainment was significant in the ancient worlds. These were things that were could be considered timeless. But part of the issue is, is that the things that are considered timeless are the ones that are the most relatable, which also often means blue humor or appealing to the lowest common denominator, which is unfortunate, but also it means it's an experience that we have all had. Yeah, I think maybe the reason I, this is only occurring to me now it wasn't when I was reviewing your notes or thinking about this podcast, but maybe the reason blue humor is the, the thing to stand the test of time is that so much of comedy is like talking about the things that you don't get to talk about or the things that you think that right. other people just get to say. And it, I guess it's always been sort of taboo, I think, to talk about sexuality. So it's just yeah. an outlet. And I, I, I think you're right that that typically is when humor is impactful. It's that it's something that uh, you feel like you've had the experience of, but but couldn't say that the, the, the he's, he's saying what we're all thinking thing has become such a trope now, mm-hmm. but it really that was quite significant. This was something that, that everyone had thought, but nobody knew how to frame or knew one was brave enough to speak about. And obviously that takes a darker turn at some points too. But <laughs> right. no, that that's significant. And I wish I had the understanding or that anyone had the understanding of the context to be able to tell why these jokes mattered enough that they wrote them down. I mean, there was there was a week when I was pretty new in comedy where I... I you thought only I lost for a week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> After that week, Andrew killed it consistently. <laughs> yeah. and was- I was new in comedy. And in a week during this time period, <laughs> I thought I lost my book with every single joke I had written. Oh. And the pain during this this time of like, okay, so do I just quit now? <laughs> do I have to do these all over again? Right. These, these were 80 jokes. This was my yeah. uh, first tight 10. You know, I have a friend who, uh, a very funny guy, I think he did stand up for a little bit. He had a show called Married on FX. Andrew Gerland is his name. And he's oh, nice. very much of the mind of like anything that's worth remembering you will. Like we co-wrote yeah. a sitcom together, uh, like a pilot. And I didn't know he worked this way. It would have been nice to be warned in advance, but basically it's like, right. <laughs> I'll do a pass. You do a pass. I'm going to then read that and then write it over from scratch. Like he's like the lines that are worth remembering. I'll remember, which is not at all how my brain works. I'll say to your point about the notebook, like I've had times where I write, I have an idea for a joke and I'll like write it out and then I'll find an older draft of that joke and be like, oh, that one's better. You know, like right. the funniest yeah. thing isn't always what sticks with me. So I feel your pain in losing that notebook because you could be like, oh, if it's funny <laughs> enough, you'll remember it, but it's like, that is not my experience at all. I'm very much that way in that I don't really write anything down. I, I will just, I'll just, just go remember? like, oh, 
Like I like literally if I write down my set list, it's just like keywords and everything. And I was just like, I got it from there, which is also how I did theater in college. So like I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I've never been good at anything I've done artistically is what I'm trying to say. Wait, no, that sounds amazing. Do you have like an incredible memory? I, I have a I have a pretty decent memory. I am able. When is trying so hard not to brag, but I've heard his set so many times and his pauses and delays are identical. Like he has the set down despite mm-hmm. never having written it down. That's amazing. Yeah. Memorizing is my least favorite part of all of it stand up and acting and i just right. I don't have i have a horrible memory no i i write everything down and you're you're right i've definitely had what by the way that was what i was told when i lost the notebook too was if it's good you remember it and uh it was not the case i went through it and was when i finally found it and was surprised at some of the stuff that was in there i'm relieved that you feel that way i was gonna say maybe it's a jewish thing but andrew's not jewish i don't know maybe it's just like sort of how our brains work i'm I have ADHD. Oh, no, I'm Jewish. I don't know if you... What? No, yeah. I know. I'm saying... Well, oh, well, we have I'm the same not. thing. Oh, well, Andrew Gerland is Jewish. Oh, okay, and gotcha. And he yeah. is the one that was like, if it's good, you'll remember it. Sorry, I forgot that you had the same name as I said, Andrew, because right. you're obviously the Andrew here. And when I'm pointing over there, it's the other Andrew. Right. Oh, that's, I got to watch the hand signals now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know what it is. And plus, I find writing it down helps. I, I mean, I, I hate the times when I'm staring at it and I can't see it, but also when I can't see it, I need to stare at it you know I, yeah. I i need to pick it back up and look at it and just let me try moving this word a little mm-hmm. bit and and let me see what i can adjust here and and yeah but i think it also it is a very personal style and the comedians that stand out to each of us are ones that are both incredibly relatable to us and ones that we feel like are incredibly unique mm-hmm. that's somehow what stands up this is exactly me and also we're the only two like this yeah yeah it is an amazing feeling when you watch something where you're like this can't possibly be speaking to anyone else and then it does right yeah. like pen 15 which i love have you guys seen that series oh i, love I think no. it speaks more to women oh good no, no, great I, i'm so I glad it. i watch it with my wife does she love it oh she, every five seconds she just hits me and she's just like shut the fuck up <laughs> like, she, like, it feels so personal like it's almost shocking that people like it because you're like no 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 i'm the only one who gets this show but it's so universal exactly well i it's it's really interesting i I think one of just jumping back to history briefly here because we've got so much i I don't want to spend too much time on the history because there's so much personal experience here but during if we go from greece to rome there was a distinction between type of humor and this really was significant. Moving on to the first century BC, Rome, we have Cicero, who was regarded as being very funny. And if you read his jokes, he was not. Yeah, I will say I've seen HBO's Rome and Mark Anthony is way funnier than Cicero. So yeah, <laughs> he also he had his slave compile his jokes and post them in three volumes after his death, which is never like, oh, yeah, this is a guy who has the perspective that's going to make things <laughs> hilarious. Right. It's like Chrissy Teigen being canceled on Twitter. For right. Like that $10,000 bottle of wine or whatever it's like oh, these God. funny jokes i had my slave draft up like well <laughs> you're probably not in touch with the people <laughs> it was yeah then these were witty turns of phrases or quick reactions basically anytime you see someone in history who was powerful and supposed to be hilarious they were mildly funny but had some zingers like winston churchill is talked about in the same way it was like yeah i mean he had some stuff he was also you know a lot of winston churchill issues there i don't know really about the issues i mean just general racism <laughs> anti-semitism i mean it was general racism is Winston Churchill's issues. It's like, I mean, thank you for all the World War II stuff. I appreciate that. But also, we don't need to pretend that he could have been on stage. You know, it was like, yeah, he had some snappy comebacks a couple times. That was great. I'd watch his tight five. I'd be curious. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's all it's all set up. It's only like good comebacks to people like being like, you're an alcoholic. And he would just like say something just like, well, when tomorrow I'll be sober, but you'll still be ugly. And it's like, yeah, that's a famous Winston (laughs) Churchill thing that was mean for him to say. 
as a drunk. Like he just has, right. very mean, he has mean things to justify alcoholism. That doesn't mean he's hilarious. Right. Also, someone calls you drunk enough times, you you plan some comebacks mm-hmm. here. It's the way people think mm-hmm. crowd work is like entirely off the cuff. It's like I've got some concepts. I've got some notes at least. <laughs> Winston Churchill was just attacked over the same thing enough times that he had you know he had his little. He had the pocketbook that he was ready to pull out. It's like, oh, they're probably going to call me an alcoholic. Yeah. If someone points out you're an alcoholic, you say this mean thing. (laughs) So what was one thing? This was just a different historical figure. Lincoln was apparently supposed to be hilarious. I believe that. For no reason. Lincoln is actually the one that I'm more inclined to believe. That dude was seven feet tall and ugly as shit. He was definitely (laughs) hilarious. Are you kidding me? He's kind of ugly hot, though. He's sort of like Adam Driver. Oh, no, no, he's like, he's like that <laughs> Pete Davidson, like, oh, he's slinging dick around. You know he is. Yeah. <laughs> A hundred percent. So two women come to visit him in the White House and they write this uh, account afterwards. And they they say he just they could go on and on. This was the funniest person we have ever met. But we're ladies. So we couldn't laugh. We couldn't crack a smile. And she said we went we went in the other room and just collapsed in laughter. <laughs> and all I can think is Lincoln thought he fucking bombed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Lincoln. <laughs> Lincoln was trying, like, Lincoln was do- throwing out his A-game material. He's like, I have these right. two ladies over. And he's just, like, throwing game madly at them. And then they have yeah. to leave the room to laugh. What a, what a sad thing. It's also yeah. crazy because now the polite thing as a woman is to laugh when it's not funny. So it's weird to think, like, right. <laughs> out of politeness, they pretended right. he was unfunny. Well, and, God, that's a really interesting point, too, in the, in the evolution of this. Because this is this was something that, again, going back to, uh, to the ancient world, now what we focus on was what makes people laugh. Uh, but ancient Romans were more interested in the the joke of themselves. Now, this is theorized due to the fact that there are numerous Latin words having to do with one who makes jokes, but words meaning laughter are mostly just cognates of ridere, meaning to laugh. And this is a, another time per- perception period of, of what is considered funny and also what is important in comedy. And the way you're supposed to respond to this is imagine the joke not being significant, but the person who's telling it is. Yeah, I don't even understand this. Like, no. again, per the notes, it says there is also an anxiety about the Joker, which would obviously make their status more significant. Like, yes. what, what, what? <laughs> so the, 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 this was really interesting because what was such an issue here was that laughing at yourself was not something to be proud of this. If, and if you were the Joker, it was, you were putting yourself in a position to have the joke be turned around on you, at which point it wasn't just a zinger, you were humiliated. So to be brave enough to be the Joker was to uh, put yourself at risk of being ridiculed because you couldn't joke about yourself. Th- this, they had to be external. And obviously if all you're doing is making jokes about other people, they're going to hit back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this was a risky position in society. And obviously also that's something that went on throughout time where the jester is the only person that can mock the king, uh, which means if the jester goes too far, he's in trouble. Oh yeah, that's fascinating. So was there more reverence for them because it was a ballsy profession? I mean, it still is, but much more dangerous then. There was more respect for for them. uh, It it seems obviously a lot of this was uh, theorized by Mary Beard, who's the ancient history professor at Cambridge. But it's, I mean, there's not like many times in history where being a performer was the respected role. But maybe here. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think this is at least understood that at, at that time that if you're doing it, there is uh, some braveness behind it. And uh, and yeah, that was interesting that that this to, to realize this is because it is something the first time you get on stage, it feels like a huge risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like you're putting yourself out there and to not get that laugh will be devastating. And uh, obviously the first time you bomb is tough. Uh, it's not like it's ever fun, but it gets a lot easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to realize that there 
there is potentially social consequences from this, that, that the way you're going to be viewed uh, because, you know, you went after someone else and then they got you back too good. It's, you know, I don't know how devastating it's actually going to be. Maybe you're just laughed at for a little while. Maybe your social standing is, is lowered, but it played a much more significant role in society because of it. I mean, have you ever been someone's main character on Twitter for the day? I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> you just throw a joke out there and then everyone's just like, let's shit on this guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I haven't. That's got to be intense. That doesn't sound fun at all. Luckily, never been me. But, you know, like, no, I think we've avoided it. Yeah, we've avoided it. We've never been. I mean, Twitter's I don't know that I've character. ever been viral enough to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm like my my uh, Bernie with the mittens photoshopped into Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind tweet did oh, pretty God, well. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, A classic of the form. I have one about Harry Potter, which is just like. Someone said Harry Potter takes place between 1991 and 1998, which is ridiculous because no one once mentions the Chicago Bulls. Really simple joke. I have British people who like yell at me. Like whenever the joke picks up steam, it's gone on Reddit. And every time they're like, this asshole doesn't understand British culture. I'm like, what the? Of course I don't. I'm making a joke about boy wizards in the 90s. Jesus Christ. (laughs) They just expect entirely too much. Exactly. But I think the thing about jesters that's crazy that I'd never thought about is like those are people that are literally willing to die for their art essentially i mean it's it's pretty in- incredible yeah and i mean there's that, that story about what was it, henry the seventh henry the eighth that had a jester who he paid uh, i mean a, a fortune enough to live on for the entire year he was given uh he was given land to come out on christmas jump whistle and fart that was <laughs> that was it and he was paid incredibly well for that. <laughs> How did it feel making your second fart joke, sort of? I hate this so much. <laughs> I, I cannot tell you how deeply uncomfortable I am right now. By the way, it was William Will Somers. Uh, who was that jester? Just Whoa. a little fun fact. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and just, so this is the range that the jester role can have, by the way, uh, where it is, okay, are you, I mean, I, I think it's a bit like being the plucked from obscurity. You're suddenly famous for this thing, and this is the only thing you do. Uh, and then you've also obviously got the hardworking writers. Well, real quick on that note, sorry, just because I think yeah. this is so, such an interesting parallel. I wonder if it was like a thing that happens now where you see somebody blow up and you're like, God, that guy's such a hack. Like, why does everybody love him? And if that's how all the jesters who had like, been yeah. writing these <laughs> intricate jokes that like really made you think and they're like this guy just fucking whistles and farts and right. literally <laughs> and he gets paid a fortune you know when vine went down a bunch of viners immediately went into stand-up and some were, were good but some just got up there and you know didn't have the sets but because they had name recognition they were getting booked and obviously frustration in the comedy community because we you know, felt like you know they didn't put the work in they just kind of appeared here and for the ones that, that did put the work in that learned to do stand-up great you know but I think there is that of why why is this person famous? It's, yeah. it's definitely a theme throughout history. Literally just farting. Like I feel like that's right. the insult you would say is like they went on stage and like farted out a couple jokes, but this guy didn't even fart out jokes. <laughs> he just farted. And Entire and performance. Yeah. I honestly I I do have to wonder how impressively he must have done these three things to be given land at a home to do this once a year. It's like, True. I cannot imagine any of these things being done so well. So he just jumped in front of people. So, I mean, good. Thank you very much, Somers, for just making me forever jealous of, of your comedy career and just how remarkably simple that was. And I've got to go write 60 jokes to do my tight 10. <laughs> but I mean, the, the range of, of comedy and history, we, I want to get to some of the modern stuff, but let's just go 
back to the fact that comedy in ancient history was also defined very differently. Comedy, when it appeared in the play world, was was based more on satyr plays. This was years before stand-up in ancient Greece, which meant a comedy was basically just something that ended happy. That that was it. There wasn't stand-up. There weren't people telling jokes in this way other than gestures. And this definition persisted for thousands of years. Comedy in through the Elizabethan period was mostly just the ancient definition. It was a play where everyone didn't die at the end was a comedy. Yeah. I have plenty about ancient Greek theater because it was my whole major. Was, was it? it really? Was it Well, not ancient. I was a theater major and one of the courses I took was the history of theater. So we, we did a lot. I wrote a lot of papers about those first plays because at first uh, it was just an ensemble and then the only speaker was the protagonist so they would explain and then they'd have the ensemble help and then they introduced the second character the antagonist and that was like the beginning of all plays and everything would end with just like telling of tales of history and uh and religion and they'd just the ones that people lived those were comedies the ones where people died those were tragedies and that carried on through for for literally centuries there was not like any gut busting things and i'll jump in more on shakespeare when we get to uh shakespearean comedy for sure God, i mean yeah thoughts. okay i'm glad we, we can definitely hit shakespearean comedy too because there's there's a lot there so yeah let's let's hit elizabethan period then well let's just go into the middle ages in general because it does have a couple like big things that like are still being used today one of the biggest ones is commedia dell'arte which is these stock characters that exist and kind of making easy, like, short plays uh, and improvisations. It was usually told wearing masks, but basically it's how we get the archetypes of things like short, fat, with tall, thin. Like, that is a basic thing that's always funny. It's C-3PO, it's Laurel and Hardy, it is just a short... Churchill and Abe Lincoln. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) If only they were a comedy duo. But it's it's one of those things that, like, you just always see it. And, like, that's... that It comes from Commedia dell'arte, and it's still being used today. And it it pops up in various forms, and unfortunately, in minstrel shows, it kind of had its... uh, a big comeback in, like, employing archetypes that are still also kind of used today which i'm sure we'll get into at some point during this big comedy episode uh we also <laughs> get into things like uh punch and judy with the famous puppets that hit each other with sticks that just made all the town's children laugh uh and then shakespeare and uh shakespeare had you know kind of a uh, comedy of errors kind of thing it had the the oh, this person doesn't know that I'm secretly this person and a lot of like leaving the room and entering the room, those kinds of things, you know, that Noel Coward kind of really just uh, hammers home later. But also uh, Shakespeare knew who his audience was. Shakespeare plays like people think about Shakespeare like, oh, it's so lofty and it's so heady and you got to be really smart to like Shakespeare. Shakespeare hated his fucking audience and he <laughs> thought that they were all idiots. Because like, if you watch Othello, one of the best pieces of Shakespeare is Othello. And it's like this really dark and like beautiful piece. But there's like, if you watch a full production of Othello, it's like an extra hour because he wrote all of these scenes in where a clown just comes in and tells a bunch of dick and fart jokes and then leaves. <laughs> and he has no bearing on the plot. He's just like, oh, I'm losing losing them i'm losing them send in the clown send in the clown to do his shit like you there are two different verses of the fellow the good one that cuts out all the clown shit and then the one with 
all this stuff where Shakespeare's just like, I guess they need to hear somebody say some dick and fart jokes for a little bit. <laughs> Nothing's changed. <laughs> That's what Shakespearean comedy was. He just, and also he, he loved a good sex pun. Oh, he loved a good sex pun that Shakespeare, like just the most. I mean, much ado about nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the crassest shit you've ever heard is just going to be crammed into a Shakespeare play. I do feel like I wouldn't be surprised if ancient sex workers had wrote some of the best zingers. It seems like you would have to. Oh, you'd have to. You'd have to. To be able to put up with those kinds of things is insane. Yeah. You need to develop a real sense of humor around it. I want to hear some prostitute zingers of your. The man loved a good uh, sex pun. A good. I mean, there's one where uh, I'm trying to remember the exact, but it's just basically like he had like a lot of like jerking off and ass eating jokes and like just right. the, the things that make a good set today, really, when you think about it. But also, I mean, this was a period where puns were a lot more respected and that it was actually consistent throughout history. And I, I think it was because they were jokes that were often told to people that weren't comedians. So this was something that the highbrow could do because you weren't going to be a comedian if you were actually wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could be clever without actually being that funny by telling puns. Not, not that Shakespeare, Shakespeare was, of course, brilliant, but he knew his audience. And that involved a lot of puns. And obviously, dirty ones uh, were, you know, his bread and butter. But the, the plays were fantastic. I don't know why this just struck me. It's been so long since I've seen it. But I remember learning from the movie Amadeus what a, what a like, fart, poop, pee joke penis jokester mozart was right yeah do you remember that which it's i mean (laughs) like he was like a five-year-old you'd expect right but i mean ben franklin too didn't he write the book with like uh, 200 different ways to describe someone being drunk (laughs) and i i think that's everyone wants to be funny you know (laughs) this very obviously understood and I, i think this is often an easy way in but because of that it's also uh purview of the big writers of the time because this was something that everyone was going to get and Shakespeare was just also clever enough to add a lot of depth to it and be like okay here are a bunch of them and here are also a bunch that nobody's going to get but me right it's like two for you two for me he's like trying to right. challenge <laughs> so yeah let's let's get a bit, a bit into Jewish comedy then because this was developed period we, we do want, obviously we have the the introduction of, of stand-up which is basically unfortunately uh forms in the minstrel shows when it starts appearing up and it's it's horrifying that it's used as this mockery but it's the first time where someone gets up on stage and just tells jokes you know, they're, they're not delivering just a monologue or a story. There's not anything going on around them. They're just standing up there and telling jokes. Here's where it went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let, let's get right into that. So Avital, where did it go wrong? You know, I don't know exactly how you describe it, but it's basically the same thing of like uh, Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's like having somebody of a different ethnicity poke fun at a different race and and like altering their face to sort of mimic a um a, a stereotype right it's just a, a problem it is and yeah i mean minstrel shows the fact that this is persisted for so long that even in forms it showed up for for so long uh even after the civil rights movement you have movies being done and maybe not done with the level of mockery but still being done with blackface being used by the way the, there's some debate as to the original but some scholars think it was Charlie Case, who was a black vaudeville performer, uh, to mm-hmm. be the very first stand-up. And he just got up on stage. He had no props, no costumes, and he he just stood up and told jokes. And uh, to do so at this time period when everyone else that's on stage and being funny is doing it mocking you, I mean, it's it's incredible that what Charlie Case did here. Well, what, what I read, which is really sad, is that Case was mixed and could sort of pass. And what really? he did was he wore blackface and it kind of 
makes me think like it's almost like if for me to be able to do stand up, I'd have to wear like a big fake Jew nose is what it feels right. like. It's like the only way that you're allowed to do this comedy is if you look like you're making fun. And so, you know, I, I don't know how accurate the Wikipedia is, but I was so interested in in Charlie Case. And it sounds like, yeah, even he had to kind of pretend to be right. black on top of being half black. That's very interesting. I had not heard that, but I do. We obviously know that at Mitchell shows that was done either in black performers uh, mm-hmm. would would have to wear uh, this uh, offensive makeup to play the role. And it's it's just a, a horrifying start to comedy. Obviously, we believe it, it grew into something that's, that's done well, but I think it does speak to the exact same issues that we have in comedy today. The problems in comedy, and I, I know this was something you broached originally when we talked about this topic, was the claims of political correctness killing comedy when it hasn't done that by any means. In my opinion, it has vastly improved comedy because it has made people aware. Uh, once you start thinking and realizing that their perspective outside of your own, their viewpoints outside of your own, that you have limited knowledge, ideally you're both looking to understand more, but also you're working harder. It does kind of sound like people saying like, not being allowed to wear blackface really ruined comedy. It's like right. a little bit. It's an insane it, take. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, and I another point that, that you had made too was uh, that something that I agree with is that it is not topics that are off limits. Uh, done right, absolutely anything to be can, can mm-hmm. be discussed uh, and and made fun of. For me, what's always been important is that I never punch down. I never have found a reason to either. If if you're any good at this job, you should be able to rewrite pretty much any joke that punches down and turn it the other way. I thought that was a really interesting contrast with, again, something in your notes was that comedy was like about basically, I think it was like an imitation of men being better than average and comedy was about men being below average, but that is essentially punching down. So it's sort of flipped what comedy used to be and what it is now. It's interesting. And I, I think it's the idea of taking the traits and, and mock them. And you're right that that is exactly that. Uh, it's you're you're lowering everything, but, uh, personally there, if you're taking any situation to mock because there are multiple people involved, there's most likely a positive and negative side. Just go after the person doing the harm rather than the person being harmed. And it feels like a very easy rule to set up. So, which is why the claims of, we can't talk about anything anymore. It's like, no, you can talk about all of it. It's, it's just recognize that. And for me, I think the reason this is so important is just recognizing we do this because we believe in it. If I didn't believe jokes had power to change something significantly uh, or to, to make an impact, to change people, to make a difference in some form, I wouldn't be doing this. So if I believe that, I have to believe the harm I can do with it is equal. And if that's the case, then why am I doing this to hurt anyone? Why am I not just switching who the target is? Uh, it, if To me, it feels political correctness is a very easy thing to incorporate in comedy. It's so interesting because, and this is such a nuanced conversation, so I don't know what the rule actually is, but like there, there are examples I can think of that are almost punching down that do work. But I think, gosh, it's so, it's so hard because with the advent of cancel culture, which we can talk about when people are like, I forgive this person that's on blast. Like the response has generally been like, well, it's not up to you. It's a, the person that they wrong to decide. But forgiveness is also really subjective. And like, you know, maybe I can't forgive a person that raped someone else, but I can like work out my own sexual assault stuff through a joke that that 
like hits that spot. And so we were talking about, you know, like Andrew and I a little bit emailed before there's um, Louis CK has a joke about rape. And then, you know, during his fall, people are like, all the evidence was here. Like here he is making light of this serious thing. And it's like, well, that serious thing happened to me. And like that joke brought me comfort. And similarly, and it's kind of punching down because it's like it's 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 I mean, the joke is roughly I'm going to butcher it, but it's something along the lines of like uh, uh, there's never an excuse for raping anyone. No one should ever rape anyone unless you really want to have sex with someone and she won't let you. And then, you know, like which is is bad. I could see why people are upset by that. But at the same time, you want to laugh about something heavy. And then I have a joke about, you know, if I'm ever raped again, I would just try to ruin it for the rapist. Um, and then like I get into different ways that I would try to ruin it. And and like I I've, I've had others rape survivors tell me how how that really like made them happy and made them laugh. But it is still weirdly sort of putting the onus on the victim to scare off the rapist. Like when you when you zoom out and look at it from a macro lens, it's sort of punching down because it's not really saying bad rapist. It's saying more like, here's what you can do to get out of it. But it's, you know, tongue in cheek. I don't think that it's the responsibility of like a woman walking home alone at night to fend off a rapist. But that doesn't mean I can't make a joke about it. So I do think it's it's a really fine line. Yeah, I don't think because Andrew, I mean, I feel like we could say that there are rules for it. I think it, it kind of falls underneath the like, what is porn? I can't describe it, but I know what I see it. Like, I know what mm-hmm. a joke when I hear it. I'm just like, it hits me in a way that I'm just like, that that doesn't work. And like, there are other jokes that I hear like, like, you know, at the time, the Louis C.K. one, like, that you described, that, you know, th- there are jokes that hit home with me, and there are jokes that, like, there's something... Anthony Jeselnik is someone who I think is a fantastic joke writer and has very good jokes. And if you just read them without any, like, knowledge, you'd be like, this is the worst fucking person I've ever, like, heard. He shouldn't be able to throw these jokes out there. To watch him tell those jokes, you're like... There's something in the chemistry. There is something in that chemistry where you're where you're able to be like, okay, the joke is against the persona, not against the people, but the writing of the joke is against the victim, but the joke is actually on the teller of the and uh, you can't describe it. And like it's impossible to dissect it in a way to be like, hey, this is why this joke is okay and you're right on your whiteboard and you know, you're just punchline, setup, teller. Like there's a there's there's a ephemeral art to it. And I think that that gets lost a lot of the time. And I think there are like good rules of thumb. Like, Andrew, you're saying, you know, generally punch down. I mean, punch up. <laughs> Don't punch down. <laughs> generally pick on people that are way smaller than you. Um, no, like there are rules of thumb, but there's also no hard and fast rules. And I think it's a way that we feel like we can try to protect ourselves from getting in trouble. It's yeah, like, well, I'm following true. these guidelines, but it's always changing. And I think for me, well, at least one something I consider is that satire is can still be punching up and that Jesselnick is a great example of, of that. But the problem with satire is if the intent isn't clear, it's having the same effect. And I have heard from people that have, have gone through trauma or have lived an experience where the joke is being made. And they're like, yes, I get that this is in fact sarcastic and against the people that that abused me or put me in this situation. But ultimately, I'm hearing the same type of words they would say to me. And I absolutely, I mean, that makes sense. That feels very reasonable. But also, I don't know where the line is because if I'm writing a satirical joke and it's hopefully my experience or I, I wouldn't be inclined to talk about it. But um, but yeah, there are things that I, I don't know as well. And I'm trying to write on the side of to, to support those who need it. Or sometimes even if you do know it, the intent can still be misconstrued, you know, and that's so absolutely. much of like what mics are for is to, to gauge whether what you 
you're what you think you're saying is what you're actually saying. And if people are receiving right. it the way you mean for them to, but all it takes is somebody pulls out a phone and films it. And now you're like taking some horrible stance when you're like, no, I'm, I'm trying to talk against that. I just am not perfect. Right. It's going to come out wrong. I remember it was a big controversy when like Chappelle and Rock, uh, they had the comedy clubs put out these bags on the seats and made everyone like put their phones and lock them in there until the show was done. A lot of people complained about it. They're like, oh, I paid money to be here. Like, you can't like tell me that I can't film this or record anything. And I'm just like, no, you have to. Cause there's so like, like I said, it's a chemistry. And if yeah. you get any of the ingredients wrong or the amount wrong, you are going to actively hurt people. And you don't mm-hmm. know that until you fuck up until it's too late. Until it's yeah. too late. You want to know before you actually put it out to the world at large, is this accomplishing what I want it to accomplish? Yeah. And if it's not, then you can, you can fix it. But once it's out there, yeah. once the genie is out of the bottle, once you've put it out into the world, it's there and you've got to deal with the fallout. I have such a great example that is not really comedy, but I feel like it dovetails exactly with, with what we're talking about, which is I'm part of a writer's group and it's, you know, more um, like narrative format. It's not stand up, and it's all women. And I, I have been working on this horror movie um, that is essentially about assault. And uh, it's like, you know, women that are like really socially conscious and hopefully know me and should give me the benefit of the doubt. And people were so outraged by it. Like it had this, there was like a huge blowback. We sort of had to change the format of the writer's group because people were so angry and then felt really bad because they had misunderstood my intentions and whatever. But basically the feedback was like, it feels like you're saying that women deserve to be raped. And like, why is she back at the house of the person who attacked her when it's like, no, no, we're saying you can not be the smartest. You can be irresponsible. You can put yourself in a dangerous situation and you still don't deserve to have that happen to you. But it read as if it's like, well, all of these things mean that she's asking for it. And this is like a group of women that I don't think think that way. But something in the writing communicated that even though it was like the polar opposite of the intention. So I think there really has to be, you know, you kind of have to look at the picture holistically. Like I'm not somebody who I'm a feminist. (laughs) Like I'm not trying to. So I just think that's like so much. And Aaron Sorkin talks about it in his masterclass that like a lot of the feedback that you try and get on scripts isn't like, is this good or bad? But is this clear? And are you saying what you think you're saying? I think that's a a really good point. And and also why I hate when someone, this is obviously less for professional comedians and more in real life, where some Someone tells a joke, someone's offended, and they say it's just a joke because the onus is always on the person telling the joke mm-hmm. to make it clear. Mm-hmm. You don't get to be mad at someone for not liking what you said. Right. Um, and there are also co- comedians that I disagree with. I think they did cross some lines with their material, but I understand other people don't feel. The, the big concern for me is that I think this is a great movement. I think this is great that we have people being more aware. Mm-hmm. The problem is right wing comedians use being canceled or claim they've been canceled to get more work. Right wing comedians don't like me. That's understandable because I stay, I believe in everything they hate. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to get booked in right wing clubs. But when they lose a left wing job, they get a bigger right wing audience at $100,000 to do a special and say they were canceled. The only people it actually affects are those that made a mistake, are mm-hmm. those that uh, really were trying to do better that that missed the mark or maybe they they in fact did say something that was wrong but they've grown i actually didn't come down on louis ck's side i didn't like what he did but what bothered me more was how he came back afterwards and he and he skewed farther right and that that is is more of the the concern to me is 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 how it's used i really like that we're developing accountability but there's also a world where this spreads so quickly that it's very hard it's it's very hard to make sure you have the handle right when you are 100% well-intentioned, but just don't know everything. 
And uh, I hate that that sometimes means people miss and and it hurts someone. And that's awful to know you're responsible for that. I think there also just needs to be a a path towards rehabilitation in some way. That's not like to say that people just need to be forgiven. But like uh, my brother um, in college met Derek Black, I think is his name, who was like the godson of David Duke and was like, you know, next in line to be the the one of like the heads of the KKK. Um, And nobody liked him for that reason, which makes sense. So he had no friends. So my brother and somebody else sort of just like befriended him and they never talked about it. And he started coming to Shabbat dinners and blah, 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 and like came out and renounced white supremacy. And I feel very proud of my brother having a hand in that. But it's like, what a great mouthpiece he is now for anybody else in that culture to be like, oh, this is uh, brainwashing and I can start a life outside of this. Whereas if you just cancel him, there's no, he can't function as a role model. And like, it just perpetuates more people being stuck in that thinking. So I think if if there's no path to redemption, you're sort of fucked. I I completely agree that that's a a big aspect of this. uh, And and again, it only uh, affects those who want to be redeemed. And if if you are really searching for that and realize, oh, I was completely wrong in this. I understand the hurts didn't go away immediately. I'm not saying, oh, you should just forgive them. I, I, the people that have hurt me personally, there are some that I've forgiven. Some, the ones that I haven't are mostly the ones that have not made any effort to change. And I, I love the idea of, of that, you know, there, there needs to be a path there because we have to understand that doesn't mean everyone's going to take it and it doesn't right. mean everyone deserves it. But ultimately, if they can function on your side after this, this is a chance to enhance the cause. This is a chance to to show the importance of of uh, of sensitivity and and uh, understanding and hopefully you know help overall. But if ultimately there it's just one and done, then in some cases you're 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 just missing out on a chance to to, to do better. Yeah, I I had this moment over the summer because I'm I'm not someone who believes that there's a real cancel culture. I, I get into this all the time where it's just like there are people that stop buying your shit, and like you have to right. accept the fact that some yeah. people will stop buying your shit. Uh, but there was this moment over the summer where like comedians were going through each other's tweets to try to call each other out for things like years ago when people were just throwing out material on Twitter because it didn't matter because it was just this fun little sentence website. This was heavily rooted in sexism, by the way. This was largely targeted at women and it resulted in in them getting death threats. And yeah, obviously this was a a targeted campaign. And when I agree with you that that, uh, in general, this is like, no, people have the right to choose whether or not to buy your stuff. That's really well said too. It's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. But but people have also figured out a way to weaponize it. But no, please continue because I think it's important. Oh, I mean, people definitely have figured out a way to weaponize it, but here's the thing. They found the people that are going to buy their stuff. And like, that's, you know. And that's it. That was always up on the wrong side. Yeah, you can't, you can, you can't be mad about, you know, people don't want to buy my shit anymore. Right. I mean, you can be mad, but yeah. they're, al- they're still yeah, allowed they're, to not buy your shit. But they're entitled right. to do it. You didn't get canceled. You stopped selling material that they wanted to buy. And you're, that's not, that's not being canceled. I'm sorry. That's just, it's, you're still able to produce content. And if you want to go over there and produce it for them, that's fine. Just stop saying that, you know, it's a thing that was forced upon you. What I didn't like was comedians action, like actively going after each other. Like this weird thing where like yeah, one person would call that. someone that's... out and then somebody else would go through their tweets and like, as like revenge for calling out another comedian. So, so they'd go out and they'd find a tweet where they fucked up and they'd be like, Hey, this is what this person put out into the world. And then somebody would go through that person. So it just became this weird thing where everyone was going after each other. And I don't think the point 
should be to call people out in a way that is publicly shaming them. Because when was the last time somebody like made fun of you in a group setting like angrily and you were like, oh, I'm going to internalize that and really. Ref-. No, right. if you get pissed off and you act like an asshole, which is what the people yeah. are like, I've been canceled are doing. Whereas like, right. I think a lot of it is just like, hey, just so you know, this from 10 years ago is still on your feed. You might want to take it down if people will be receptive of that. I feel like. Yeah. Sure. It's again the intention of like, do you just want to take someone down or do you want another ally in the fight for what's right and inequality? Exactly. Do you like that? That's the thing. It's just like, don't don't actively try to shove somebody into the limelight as bad. Try to be like, hey, man, this joke didn't work. You should fix that. And that's what I think, like, as comedians, we need to be good about doing is giving each other grace of just like understanding that joke doesn't work. And if they're receptive of that, great. And if they get very angry and like, hey, fuck you, that joke is great. It's you just don't yeah. understand. That's when you know that person is an asshole. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can stop buying and you can stop buying their shit and not want right. to associate with them. So yeah, I think it's a very weird, nuanced kind of world that we're in, but also good. Like I want to be operating at the top of my brain. Right. I want to yeah. write material that isn't lazy. I want to actually like be able to like construct and like talk about, hey, is a leaf of lettuce funnier or is a head of lettuce funnier? <laughs> right. Like, I don't want to do material from like 10, 20 years ago where you could just like put on a effeminate voice and be like, this is a gay character. And everyone thinks that's funny because it's not, I don't find it funny anymore. And there's might be an audience for it, but it's not the audience I want. You know, yeah, right. Yeah. And the idea that the racist humor or the sexist humor or, or whatever group you're targeting, it's not new. I've not heard new racist or sexist material. It's the same joke that's being been told hundreds of years with a slight variation. It is the absolute laziest writing. It's like, I. it is not the main reason I'm offended. I'm offended because what they're doing is wrong. But I'm also offended as a comedian that you are writing terrible right. jokes and getting paid for it. Be better than this. This is terrible work. Or I, I hate the assumption that it's just offensive. Like I, I, at a bar years ago, I don't. I remember this so vividly. Somebody said a sort of, sort of anti-Semitic joke. Like it wasn't particularly offensive. It just was like it didn't really make sense and it wasn't funny and he just said it to me and I didn't laugh and he was like oh sorry I guess that's too offensive and it's like no I mean the only it's offensive because it's not funny it's just like no it's a bad right. joke yeah <laughs> I'm offended by how unfunny that is that's, <laughs> I hate, I, that's one of my least favorite things is when comics are just like oh I'm sorry I offended you and she's like you offended me by the writing of the joke right, right. Even just with subject. your bad taste like I, I had a tweet that did well that was just like anytime a comic says it's too dark it's never too dark it's just not funny it's always not funny yeah <laughs> that's a really good point to, yeah because so much of this comedy is basically just it's just a guy screaming at a goose and when the goose doesn't <laughs> laugh saying the goose must have been offended by it <laughs> right. and it was like maybe maybe this maybe you're just bad at this we can dislike you for other reasons yeah <laughs> but it's again it's just a, it's just a shrugging of responsibilities it's it's the it's the fault of my audience right. for for not laughing not that we have an all had shows where the audience didn't laugh and you're like okay but that was a good set you know yeah, sometimes right. you do get a bad audience sometimes but ultimately do. yeah but i don't assume that they're offended i just i'm like exactly. i'm not for them yeah, exactly that's fine. and that's it there are people that i know <laughs> my my girlfriend when she first introduced me to her friends very uncomfortable with compliments and general positivity she introduced me saying um yeah he's this time i was mostly on 
Twitter. He said, yeah, he's very big on comedy Twitter. I don't find a lot of it funny, but other people do. <laughs> Just an absolutely, and nobody asked. Nobody needed to know, to know that. <laughs> Thankfully, she's warmed on me since then. <laughs> but yeah, there's an audience that doesn't like my stuff and that's that's okay. Of course, I want everyone to love me all the time, but mm-hmm. I understand that's not what it is. And uh, and. Ultimately, it's just it's always my responsibility to make it better. It's nobody else's. It's it's my job to fix my jokes. That's yeah. this is the career we chose, uh, and and that's that's what that means. Yeah, it's not it's not cancel culture. It's just realizing that the audience you want isn't liking your stuff, and like yeah, right. that, I mean. There you go. There it is. You know the what? The person yeah. I like I'm doesn't like much, me back. I'm glad how much I have talked during this whole thing about cancel culture. And I'm glad none of it will ever bite me in the ass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. I'm scared. I'm like, how much of this do we want? Well, but, you know, and I, I think that is is one of the negative effects. And while I agree with when that cancel culture itself isn't real, it's that a lot of comedy, a lot of good comedy comes from being brave. It comes from from talking about something that that is hard to talk about. And I, I think the freedom to do that important. And again, that's why I don't think any political correctness is an issue because ultimately you find the right way to talk about it. That is is a good thing. Uh, the risk is that I, I hate the idea that, that people are more afraid to, to talk about this because it's it's important and, and there is growth. And yeah, I'm sure there are going to be some people that are hit hard because someone took a video at the wrong time when, when you said something the wrong way. And yeah, I think it's awful that it can be targeted in the wrong way. I think it's great that there's accountability. I, I think it's great that we're aware of the pain that, that jokes can cause and are trying to do better. But I, I think that also basically it's it can just be a machine gun too. And you can just kind of point it and see who it hits. And, and that's where really the danger is because it does make people afraid when they're trying to do the right thing. It's just can be hard to be understood when your job is about nuance and mm-hmm. it's about uh, discussing the tough things in tough ways. Yeah, I think another rule of thumb that is like a general thing, but isn't set in stone like any of it is, is like you can talk about your experiences. Like I feel yes. less like if somebody tries to cancel me for being anti-Semitic, it's like, yeah, I hate myself. What do you, what do you expect? Right. You know, like- <laughs> I hate that we didn't get to the entire, I mean, with our backgrounds, Jewish comedy, oh. the history here is really fascinating. And I've got stuff on the Borscht Belt. Should we? Should we just- Let's, Can we hit this a little bit? Because this was what was significant. And I, yeah. We've also been talking for like an hour and a half so far. We do this as an hour show, but it's good stuff. Let's face it. We're going to listen through and be like, oh, take that out. Take, okay, yeah. take that Maybe out. Everything about cancel culture is gone, which would be fine, actually. But, you know, whatever. But I think one of the important parts here was that this was, in fact, a development. And obviously, the number of Jews in stand-up comedy is is huge. And I don't have this in, in the, the notes as much, but it Jewish humor developed during the Jewish Enlightenment. There was hints of it back in, in more biblical times, but to develop what it did today started in the Jewish Enlightenment period. And then ultimately you come to America and there's not much chance for upward mobility. You have this hard uh, tied in cultural depth and roots. And the, also just the famous line of people that are oppressed tend to be funny. Mm-hmm. You've got to find a way to deal with it. And also the success with, with gestures, but this was another common thought in how Jewish comedy developed, was that when you were uh, an oppressed group, you had to find more creative ways to attack those in power. You couldn't just come out right and say it. It meant nuance. Uh, it meant sarcasm. It, it meant satire. And then all of a sudden you have the Borscht Belt and the greatest comedians of 50 years all find a place to come together. And it's it's this incredible period of time where comedy develops. Comedy develops in a way that is is still impactful today, even though we've grown, even though uh, there's more alternative comedy now. We've got longer stories than it was a lot quicker. But it sets the stage for what comedy would become. So, you know, thank 
Thank you, Jews. That was we, we did good on that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, because we you know started with talking about the series and how I love the the sort of like sad mixed with the funny, and it sounded like right Wens you were into that too. This is really dark, but I I love it. I um I just read The Choice by Edith Eager, a Holocaust survivor. Have, have either of you read it? No. I'm oh, not. it's so great, so beautiful. Highly recommend it. It's like also an easy. Well, I was gonna say an easy read because like it's sh- short, but it's you know it deals with the Holocaust. So. It's like a beach read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> perfect. Perfect for the beach. But. She she talks about this, and I know um, Victor Frankel talks about it in, in *Man's Search for Meaning*. The kind of comedy that that came out during the Holocaust is like it warms my heart because it's just the darkest of times. And I haven't read *Man's Search for, for Meaning*, just this excerpt, but where it would be like you know men in the showers, and they didn't know if it was going to be an actual shower or if they were going to get the gas. And people that thankfully survived the Holocaust were like, there was a time where it was actual shower, it was just water, and they would like hit each other and be like, "You should have seen your face. You were so scared!" Like laughing at each other or in. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, in in Edith Eager's book, she talks about like how they in the concentration camps had like contests for like who did the best catwalk and who had the best boobs and like just ways that they were making each other laugh until they peed, even as they're like, you know, starving and right. dying. Um, and it makes me feel proud that it's like, you know, finding ways to laugh so that you don't just die. Absolutely. And I, I think that's it was it it was a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. And it's it's still how I process trauma. Same. Yeah, it's same. it's what I used to get through it and it's it's i'm so happy i have that but also you see those that are like yeah in concentration camps doing the same thing and it's like uh you know no i've i've got my stuff i've i've, I've had damage i had to deal with it but picturing doing it at that level is incredible yeah. and it was very much rooted in the culture and and obviously after that it just developed though i remember hearing mel brooks talk about uh, who was my hero growing up talk about when they wrote the 2000 year old man and this was like 1950 and it was done just at parties for a decade because they didn't think the world could handle Jews being that Jewish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it it wasn't until someone had, had told uh, Brooks, he said, just just print the records, just have them for yourself. Well, I'll put you in a recording booth and you can do this. Cary Grant went to England and asked for a dozen of these to take with him. And when he came back, um, he said she loved it. And Brooks said, who? And he said, the queen. The queen. I heard this on WTF, I think. It was a fantastic story. And I yeah. honestly I feel bad telling it because I feel like it shouldn't come from anybody but Mel Brooks. But this was the moment where they said, OK, I guess if the queen likes it, the world is ready for it. But realizing how much Jewish comedy exploded during this time period when people were still afraid to tell jokes that highlighted their Jewishness, uh, which I know you and I both had issues with The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel because of this. I didn't know that you also had issues with it. But to me, it feels a little bit like a minstrel show because they're are so few Jews on that show. So few. And I, I think one of the things that I, I read about it that, that bothered me was this is a time period where there is a lot of relevant stuff happening to Jews. Behavior at this time was not just, oh, I'm going to get up on stage and be Jewish and it's going to be fine. There was backlash to this. This was a hard thing to do. And if you're telling the story, which I was, you know, very loosely supposed to be based on Joan Rivers, mm-hmm. you've, you've got a real story to tell here with what Joan Rivers went through. This is stuff that if you're going to say it's at all based on this, you should be talking about the the hits she took to get here. And I've I've enjoyed the show too. I've I've found it, it funny. I've liked it, but then once I found out none of them were Jewish, yeah. it was like this God. This is an important thing here. You don't can you put some of them in? And it also comes back to again, yeah, 
to how subjective it is because for whatever reason it doesn't bother me that tony shalhoub plays a non-jew when it's like <laughs> i just love tony shalhoub so yeah, much too <laughs> great. but then it's like it's so centered on mrs mazel which by the way growing up knowing anybody with that last name it was always mazel so it feels weird that it's yes. like <laughs> what the fuck is that and then it's like an italian girl with like a nice little nose you know like it just feels right. wrong and she's not even a stand-up like cast a fucking jewish stand-up jenny you know? slate was the name i i had heard and it was Same. like Oh God! Why didn't we have Jenny Slate in here? Yeah, I do love Jenny Slate. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's weird to pick and choose. Like, all right, fine with Tony Shalhoub. Even, even. Uh, oh, what's the mom's name? Oh God, I like her I, too. I, was, I feel like it starts with an H. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mar- Marion Hinkle. Marion. Yes. Marion Hinkle. Marion Hinkle. I think it is. Oh yeah, and they also had. I mean, God, they had someone come up and play Lenny Bruce. Yeah. And it was God. Can, can you please get a Jewish stand up for this on. role? Like, it's this is so important because Lenny Bruce was pivotal. I shouldn't have taken the role. And I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Lenny Bruce, I mean, the 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 things he did for comedy and the hits he took from it, obviously eventually leading to overdose. I mean, he put himself on the line for comedy over and over yeah. again. And one of the things they discuss is that he did this, but they don't discuss that part of that was that he was Jewish and and that this that he had to be playing to an audience that didn't understand this. And he talked about it so openly and so bravely that he set, I mean, he, he paved the road for us. He, he yeah. let us do this by getting up there and being one of the first to do it in the way he did. And I think that thing of, you know, like, I feel like I can make jokes about being Jewish or about rape or things that I've been through. And it, it feels like there are some lines in there that are anti-Semitic that I could handle if it was coming from Jews. Yeah. Like my my best friend says that I ruined the show for her because she was really enjoying it and didn't <laughs> know that they weren't Jewish. And I was like, oh, yeah. I hate that show. Anyway, so there was like a part that she brought up where somebody says, you know, like, shikses are for practice, which yeah. is... Like a thing that I have heard Jewish men say or Jewish mothers tell their sons, which Wens, I don't know if that made sense to you, but it's basically like. I'm aware of a shiksa. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Well, like you can, you can like fuck a non-Jewish girl, but you don't marry, you know, like, which is a really (laughs) gross idea and does not cast us in a flattering light, which is fine. Jews are not perfect. We do things that are bad and wrong and, you know, like anybody else, we're not perfect, but like, it's different to have that being said by a person who is Jewish and has grappled with that pain versus like somebody just playing a Jew it just feels and especially right now in 2021 like that just feels like why is that still okay I agree I mean my grandmother's maiden name was Weintraub Mm -hmm. and she moved and she changed it and when I was young I judged her fairly harshly for that where it was no you should own it and then I had to realize okay like in you want her to own this in 1950? You want you it's you you do what you have to to get by, but realizing this was a this was a daily struggle for her. This was something she had to deal with and she she made her choices and I don't agree with all of them. But yeah, there there was just so much here that that should be discussed, but it should be discussed by the right people who have the experience and the understanding and you talk about making jokes about your own experience. Uh, I know we've talked before on the show about I'm I'm disabled and it was, you know, spent 5 years pretty much bedridden, um which I am because of that, even though I look healthy now, very comfortable making jokes about disability. I have almost never gotten a laugh at a joke about disability. It makes people so instantly uncomfortable. And I, I understand it. It's also tough for me because it was how I wanted to process dealing with this. Right. Like we talked about, all of us process our trauma that way. Exactly. Andrew, I'll laugh at the jokes about your disability. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> very loudly, 10 seconds longer than everyone else. Honestly, that that, that would, uh, that would <laughs> should be discussed 
discussed more, but it is one of those things where I have had people, I've also heard jokes about disability from people that weren't disabled. And yeah, I, I tighten up at that because it was just this immediate response of you, you can't know what that was like. You can't know what we had to go through to get to the stage where you could talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's not unique. That's what everyone who's who's dealt with trauma has, has gone through. But I think it does, as you said, there, there are exceptions. It's hard to put a rule where this is always it or always isn't it. But ultimately, it's, yeah, you, you can talk about your own experiences any way you want, but or anyone should be else's, to. or should be able to at least, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to alienate Amy Sherman Palladino because I think she's a very talented and a genius. I just so really good. have a hard time with that casting. Yeah, that was it too, because I, I, I have really enjoyed the show as well. Uh, it was just the, I, I would have liked to see the representation there, and I would have liked to have seen, I understand it's a comedy too. You want it to be light and funny stuff, but there was a lot going on in the time period that should be discussed when you consider that this is, you made this pivotal part of the show. You've made right. it very important that she's Jewish. Then you made it very important that she's publicly Jewish. That's a big thing. And that was a big thing that happened in real life. Uh, so let's, it's, it would be great to cover that the right way too. Right. And I feel like if you just fall in love with Rachel Brosnahan and you're like, she's my lead, I have to use her, then like maybe don't make the show so much about being Jewish. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I think she does a good job with it, it too. But it was one of those things where I Googled it. And as soon as I find out she's not Jewish, <laughs> there's mm-hmm. a there's a shift in that feeling. Yeah. It feels a little like she's in Jew face. Like, because it's also yeah. like a <laughs> imitation like a little bit like an impression of a certain kind of Jew. And that just feels yeah. wrong. That's it, because occasionally you hear a, a line too, or or something will hit you and, and that's it. It feels like we could say this about us, but that is, is but because you're, it's almost feels like a caricature mm-hmm. of a Jew. That's when it starts to, to feel more like it's, it's crossed a line. Cause I, yeah. I get it, you know, actors are going to play different things, but as soon as you start playing it as if into a stereotype, yeah. that's when it gets the territory of I think like, caricature is exactly the right word. That's what, yeah. yeah like stereotype, it just feels so... And then I, I was rewatching one of John Mulaney's specials and, you know, he's like talking about his wife and he's like, and sure, she's a bossy little Jew. And it's like not at all <laughs> offensive, you know, right. it's like and maybe it's because he married her. I don't know what the thing is like. So, again, there's a fine line. Some It's like a, a chemistry thing, like you guys were yeah. saying, like sometimes it just works. I'm not offended that he called yeah. her a bossy little Jew. I love it. Yeah. I mean, he does that, that great line where he does that aside where it's like this is about to get playfully anti-Semitic. So he's got to kind of roll <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did it. I got me a New York Jew. He said. <laughs> But you're right. It didn't didn't bother me at all. And that is uh, a lot of a, the comedian having the skill and the understanding to be able to deliver it in a way that makes it okay, uh, which takes practice. It's why you have mics, uh, right. as you pointed out before. It's because it, it's, I am sure that did not go over as well as it did in his <laughs> tape special the very first time yes. he said it. <laughs> so true. So you know what? Let's move on to our next segment. Let's discuss in their defense. God, that's going to be brutal. In defense of minstrel shows. <laughs> <laughs> I am absolutely not defending <laughs> that's the laugh by the way <laughs> oh it's great it really is everything you guys it was not overhyped at all what Evie told uh, and i were talking about the topic i said by the way in their defense it can be sarcastic because i honestly could not find a way around this just because i refuse to defend certain things even in like oh this sort of way is okay because i think they cause more harm or enough harm that it, that it just can't be okay but we also discussed a lot of aspects of this like cancel culture whether or not that's real and just what lines to cross and i think there's plenty there to defend if any, either of you want to go first. Fuck it. I'll do it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> For a lot. So I, I, I have done research on this. I'm not speaking out of my ass here. Yeah. Minstrel shows, sadly, and I'm saying it sadly, but they were the first break in point for a lot of black performers in America. And the tropes that they started 
were later repurposed and taken back in a way so that you get performers like Dolomite. If, if you've ever seen Dolomite is my name, he is taking those kinds of old jokes, those kinds of old vaudeville minstrelly jokes and personas, and he's wrapping up in a new way where he presents it as is a proud and and funny like in context where it's not mocking it is purely a celebration of himself and his culture and you probably wouldn't have had that transition if you didn't have the horribly awful racist thing that happened beforehand that put it into mainstream culture it was bad and it's evil and you shouldn't do blackface but i am saying that it is a starting point in American culture that allowed black performers a foothold into what they could perform that is funny and white audiences were also able to listen to it. And even though they had it in a racist context from their knowledge before, they were like, oh, I know this. And they were able to enjoy it from black performers. And that is my defense of minstrels. <laughs> I am very surprised that you chose that with so many options to go through. But I think the idea that it is the defense of the uh, of of the performers that, that used it, yeah. that the fact that it existed was terrible, but that black performers were strong enough to turn it around and, and become obviously, uh, this is such a tough one to talk about, to, to turn it around and become something that, that they could use as a strength when it was used against them for so long. And I think the defense then is solely on the on the performers. Of course, the fact that this existed for so long is horrific. But yeah, but ultimately, it's it was, an, I think, another example of comedians using trauma uh, <laughs> to become stronger and funnier. And they've, they've yeah. obviously done an amazing job with that. Like, it would be amazing to see Charlie Case and what he pulled off. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. It was one of those things where it was like, yeah, I, I wish I wish there were there was better examples of this, that there was uh, that there was tape of this in a time where it obviously couldn't exist, that yeah. uh, to see what they did was so brave and and must I, I can't imagine how hard it was to do. And they got up and did it and it helped pave the way for all future black performers. Incredible. I'll do uh, a defense of it a little bit left out of left field. But something that I was thinking about is, you know, the sad clown. And I feel like often where things go wrong is you're making everyone laugh and you're dying on the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think about Lenny Bruce and Drake Sather. I was just watching his stand up, if you know him at all. And then Robin Williams, who like I took that death very personally. And then I wonder, I guess, in the defense of that, it's like, are those people that that actually would have died sooner if they didn't have comedy as an outlet? Like we were talking about using our trauma and turning it into laughs. I don't know the answer. Right. But that's the the defense, I would say, because I feel like that's where I get so angry at. I don't know, at comedy. I get angry at the world, but it's it's more like that you can be this beacon of light and joy for other people and then like, you know, just totally empty on the inside. But in defense of that, I'm like, sad clowns are where it goes wrong. You know, you're, right. you're oh, just yeah. dead inside. Pagliacci, yeah. 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 We're all just a bunch of Pagliacci's just walking <laughs> yeah. around doing our best. Clearly, which I feel like we got into a lot. I'm like, I'm sorry. I hope this isn't, a, you know, it's not as funny as I think your episodes usually are. Great. It really made it dark. But. No, I think this is the most important stuff to talk about. And again, this is by far our longest episode recording and I am nowhere near done talking about this because it is one of those things where it, it hits you so deep inside and I think Wen's phrase of magic is is it uh, as much as I love research and organizing and being able to put things on levels where I can do comparisons and, and go over my notes and see this works slightly better ultimately I don't know a joke is right until I feel it there's not a way I can quantify it and it's is also very dependent on the state that I'm in and how good a, a joke I can write, which is, I think I'll go off of yours, the idea of working through comedy, that the comedy has done a lot of damage too. 
And I think that's ultimately it, whether you want to talk about it to the comedians themselves or to, to the far more damaging things like minstrel shows and racism and sexism and anti-Semitism that have been brought up through comedy. Ultimately, we have used this as best we could. And I, I think that is such an incredible thing that you can think I'm hurting so bad right now. I need to go make somebody else laugh is a beautiful human instinct and absolutely incredible that it's I, I can't make me laugh right now. I can do it for someone else. And that's going to get me as close as I, I, I can get to that feeling. And yeah, obviously mental health and comedy is something that has to be uh, observed because yeah. that is often the path here. It is often born out of trauma that it's, you know, watch out for your comedian friends as best, yeah. as best you can. Yeah. But ultimately, I'm so glad that uh, out of trauma, we've been able to create a lot of pretty incredible stuff and get through it. I love that idea that, you know, I'm down, so I'm going to go make somebody else laugh. I, I want to lean into that because I feel, you know, being totally honest that that for me, the drive is more like finding the joke, like where most comedians get the most yeah. joy from the crowd's reaction. For me, it's like one side, I'm like, oh, I figured it out. That's my end. Or like, that's the angle. Oh, absolutely. That's what feels the best. No, and it's, you as know, much as I love stand-up, I could be happy writing. It's the <laughs> getting that, that immediate response is great. But when you know you have the joke, that's that's a beautiful feeling when it's, it's like, like this is just right. That you exactly. All of the words are in the right place. And mm-hmm. that sense of like, oh my God, I actually got it. It really does feel, I mean, there's nothing else like it. There's, there's nothing else like it feeling like you got every word just right and you understand it and now you can convey it in a way that everyone else is going to understand. It's it's one of the greatest feelings in the world and I love being on stage, but ultimately it's it's satisfying because you made it. Mm-hmm. You made it something that you can deliver like that and you realize that those people in the audience are getting what you're trying to say to them and that's such an incredible thing. Magic, like like one said. Yeah, yeah. Wise words. Wise words from when. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that about covers it. We got into a brief history of comedy. I think we skipped over half of the notes because this oh is so gosh. fun to get into. I know, I have notes too that I'm like, we didn't even, I mean, I really like the idea that God sort of pranked Abraham by being like, kill your son, JK. <laughs> <laughs> like I had a lot of weird comedy notes. Just, oh but. God, that's a really, <laughs> we should do, a, I mean, honestly, we can have you back for a Bible episode too, <laughs> because there, I feel like there's a lot to cover there. But no, I mean, that that is the history. What we loved about comedy is so much. I Normally I wrap this up or sum it up, but I, I can't really. It's just that this is, has impacted our lives in ways that I can't possibly define. What we hate about it is that it has been a launch pad for a lot of racism and is very easily wielded powerfully and misused. But I mean, that's that about does it. Avital Ash, thank you so much for coming on. You have Antisocial Distance coming out on April 8th. We want all of our listeners to go watch that immediately and you'll have multiple episodes coming out over the week. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. And as always, we're going to have our Patreon down in the show notes, which helps us keep this show running. And we're going to be back next week. We hope you'll join us. I'll see you next week, Gwen. Bye. Bye. Bye, thank you.